From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are thrilled to have Professor Katherine Kramer on the podcast. Professor Kramer, a political science Badger alumna, received her PhD from the University of Michigan. She's researched and written about political behavior and polarization for a long time and is the author of The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin, and The Rise of Scott Walker, a book which many national journalists and scholars said was helpful in explaining Donald Trump's presidential victory in spite of many polls and a consensus in the media that he wouldn't win the election. Professor Kramer has also been in touch with John Stewart, who has directed a movie on swing state politics set in Wisconsin slated to come out soon. If we get the chance, we'll also be talking about your day with John Stewart driving around Wisconsin if you're up for it. But first, um, let's start with some more serious questions. So we're recording this on Monday, April 13th, six days after Wisconsin went to the polls amidst a nationwide pandemic, and we still don't have the results, though we are expecting them to come out tonight. Your research seems to speak a little bit about what happened last Monday with the political battle when Evers issued a last minute executive order to delay the election and hours later, that decision was overturned in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So it was a divisive political fight and a swift legal decision. Wisconsin ended up having the election. So as a political scientist, what do you make of what all happened here? And maybe also your insight into it as well as a lifelong citizen of Wisconsin. Great question. We still all are puzzling over that election, aren't we? So I guess I can look at it from a variety of angles. One is just the political strategy that went behind the decisions that took place around the election, just trying to make sense of that. But then also from the perspective of the voters in Wisconsin and residents of Wisconsin, just politically, how are they understanding it? And then sure, I'll do my best to make sense of it too as a lifelong Wisconsinite. But in terms of political strategy, I don't have any, you know, uh, inside information here, but from as an observer, thinking about what what was the strategy in for for one thing for Governor Evers sort of um, waiting some somewhat till the last minute to start trying to make decisions about the election. Um, it, it, it does seem to me that the main um, thing he was weighing was the need to actually hold this election because, as those of us are here on the ground know, that it was not just a presidential primary, right? It wasn't just a Democratic presidential primary. It was a set of really important local-level municipal races, so most municipalities had elections going on, and then a state Supreme Court general election. So there were big you know, issues on the ballot besides uh, just the, the presidential primary. And so it does seem like in, in a pandemic, 
uh, having local level officials on the ground in place is really important. So that was one of the things that he was saying was a reason why he wanted the election to take place. But then there was a series of kind of back and forth decisions at the end there, right, about whether or not to have the election take place, to extend the, the period of time in which the absentee ballots could be received. And to be honest, I don't, I don't fully understand why politicians of both parties didn't want to delay the election because it's not clear. We don't actually know who, which party would have um, advantaged to hold it or to delay it. I mean, I think there is this perception right now that more mailing voting, voting by mail, early voting, absentee voting benefits the Democratic Party, but we empirically don't know that to be the case. Um, and it'll be interesting after these results come out tonight what we learn about partisan advantage, although it'll still be a little bit hard to tell. Um, but it's not clear that there was an advantage to either party for actually holding the election. So moving in, I'm going to skip ahead a bit here to just understanding the election from the perspective of Wisconsinite. Personally, I just find it very unfortunate. It was very dangerous for many, many people not just the people who wanted to exercise their right to vote, but for the poll workers and the other people who were involved in making the election happen. Um, I think it was a very sad day in Wisconsin history, last election day. And I know many people who are involved in the Badgers Vote Coalition on campus, which is this coalition of awesome people across campus who are trying to make sure that students have everything that they need in order to vote that it was a little bit of a grieving period where we, you know, on the one hand, um, really wanted to encourage people to work as poll workers and exercise their right to vote. And many of us found ourselves not wanting to do either, which felt very odd. But from the perspective of, of Wisconsinites, I mean, the main, one of the main takeaways is it was just extremely confusing for people wanting to participate. I mean, you all as students, you had another layer of confusion, just being suddenly removed from where you had been living, um, adding in the additional hurdle of a confusing process to get a voter ID if you didn't have one uh, as you were scrambling to leave campus. So um, we just, we know that it, from political behavior research that any additional hurdle you add to voting the more confusing you make it, the less likely people are to vote. And in theory, we want people to participate in their democracy, right? It's Democracy is only going to persist as long as people actually take a role in it. So yeah, I don't have a lot of optimistic things to say about that election. It was pretty unfortunate from many perspectives. Yeah, Wisconsin all of a sudden found itself not only in national press, but international press, getting all this attention for the decision to hold this election. Yeah. Um, I know there's images circulating of Robin Voss, the Speaker of the Wisconsin Assembly, fully suited up in his mask and his personal protection, saying that the election was safe, encouraging to people come out. Um, but that seems to have gotten a little bit of pushback in the national press. What do you think, or do you think there's going to be any sort of political price to pay for this? Or do you think come November, come the next election, this is something that'll be just another chapter in Wisconsin politics. Well, I do think a lot of people will forget the specifics of April 7th, come even though come November, right? But 
a lot of times I think what happens is it, individual instances like this, they register on people's minds. We might forget the specifics, but there's, there's at some level we're registering um, a lack of trust in our political leaders. For example, when a political leader shows up at the polls himself with a lot of protective gear and at the same time is telling people it's perfectly safe. Clearly there's mixed messages there and that doesn't bode well for people's faith in their political leaders. And so unfortunately, generally what that does is make people want to tune out completely, not necessarily change their partisan allegiance, but just feel as though they're not listening to people like me. Why should I bother to participate? Because it actually takes a lot of effort to participate. So it's just not worth my while. And that's the opposite of what we want. The pandemic has quickly become a very partisan issue, right? And I'll tell you that as someone who studies political behavior and worries a lot about the future of democracy and really um, <laughs> hopes that people find ways to find common ground as opposed to deepening our divides, that you might have thought, I don't know, six months ago, that, I mean, a lot of times when people talk about the nature of divides in the United States right, day, right now, they say, you know, may, the only thing that's, over, that's going to overcome these divides is something like a world war that brings us all together. And you might have thought, well, the ideal thing would be some kind of like natural disaster that has no human cause that would make people understand how important it is to um, not only be kind to one another, but, but to value the resources that we do all share that can help us in times of like rapid acute need. Well, a pandemic kind of fits that bell, right? But unfortunately, it too has become extremely divisive. And so I, I don't know um, what the rhetoric of that race is sounding like, like this week, but I am wondering at what point, uh, and I think it's already happened, unfortunately, in Wisconsin and nationally, becomes a, a discussion of rural versus urban. And to the extent that nowadays we equate Democratic Party with urban and Republican Party with rural, um, I do expect those kind of devised to infiltrate that race. Meaning, I mean, right now, um, there's a lot of discussion in our, in our smaller communities in the rural parts of Wisconsin about not wanting people from the cities to come out and stay in their vacation weekend homes. And if you're someone in the cities, being in gorgeous rural Wisconsin right now sounds super appealing, right? But of course, people in those communities say, if, if you all come out here to your weekend homes and suddenly need emergency care and take up all of our ICU units and respirators, um, we're, that leaves us in a bind. So um, there's all, you know, the pandemic is quickly becoming yet another instance in which this rural versus urban divide and who has resources and who doesn't and partisan divides is lining up. And um, I, I do expect that kind of discussion to affect that race. 
So you, you really hit on what we were going to ask uh, next with your answer to that question. So we, we just kind of wanted to mention the Pew Research is uh, polling about the divide between Republicans and Democrats on their perceptions of how serious the pandemic is. Um, and to give a little bit of background on what you were just explaining, could you just give a quick summary of your research on rural resentment and why you think that may be that, that difference in opinion? Sure, sure. I should back up a little bit to say that in my research, what I did was to invite myself into conversations of people meeting and and groups of people that they normally meet with. So people in gas stations, at diners, sometimes in churches, just people who knew one another who were talking about a wide variety of things. And then once in a while, I would ask a question. And, and, and I say that just to um, make it clear that what I'm about to say does not characterize the views of everybody in rural Wisconsin, much less rural United States. But the, the themes that I heard were really pervasive and do resonate with what we hear in a lot of other parts of the country as well. And generally what I heard was this sense of people living in rural communities or small communities of feeling really proud of the place that they lived and loving it. And at the same time, feeling like their their type of community does not get its fair share of resources. They were saying to me in many different ways, you know, we don't get our fair share of political power. A lot of decisions are made in, in other places, particularly cities like Madison and Milwaukee, and then communicated to us. And we don't have a say in those decisions. They were also saying that they didn't think that they were getting their fair share of resources, that it seemed to them all the wealth was in the cities, all the good jobs were in the cities, and a lot of their taxpayer dollars, it, it seemed like to them, they were paying high taxes, but not really seeing those taxes come back to their community. And then they were also saying that they felt disrespected, you know, that they weren't getting their fair share of respect, that people in the cities looked down on them, thought that they were not educated, that they weren't sophisticated, and that they were racist and sexist and so forth. And in all those ways, they were saying they, they were resentful of all this stuff that they felt that they deserved more of but weren't getting. They felt like, you know, we're good, hardworking Americans and we deserve better and we're not getting it. And it's that sentiment is not recent. I think it's been building for many decades. But I think one thing that's shifted is that it's it's sort of overlapped onto our partisan divides in a way that's kind of crisp so that many people in rural areas are seeing and hearing the Republican Party tap into their resentment um, and the Democratic Party in their eyes is representing cities and urban people. And so um, politicians have figured out how to tap into that and and it that kind of the regional divide has become part of our political debates in Wisconsin and, and across the country. Professor, would you say that you are surprised at all about the the amount of partisanship that has surrounded COVID nineteen? And does it feel different at all between like national partisanship and in Wisconsin? Great question. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I am surprised, but I'm, but as you were asking the question, I was trying to think like as a political scientist, should I be surprised? And, and I guess not right. Given the nature of our partisanship and 
polarization, just general divisiveness in our political culture. It is probably a little bit naive on my part to think that maybe we would respond to this differently. Still, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. And it's questions like this where I have to balance my own personal nature with myself as a scientist to say, you know, the personal part of me would like to believe that in a time of a pandemic, we could rise above partisanship to actually take care of people. So I'll get off my soapbox there for a moment and think of it now more as a political scientist where it is an election year, right? We are not that far out from the November election now. So it shouldn't be surprising that people are looking to this for how can they take advantage of this in terms of winning the, the November election. And I do think we should be on the watch for, as, as we try to come out of this as a country and, and global society too, but as a country, like how do we now um, come out of social distancing? It, unfortunately, it's gonna be a very partisan thing, right? You can already see how the, the push to open up is coming more from the Republican party, especially it's very much in President Trump's interest for the economy to get back up and humming in time for the November election. But it does seem that, that, that there's some pushback um, from healthcare professionals at this point and, and just by almost by definition pushback from the Democratic party if the Republican party's pushing for greater openness of the economy. I don't know if that looks all that different in Wisconsin. On the I, I don't see it yet. I see a pretty similar debate going on here in the state. Um, and I think the the way the election last week was handled suggests that, yeah, partisanship is just about as strong here in, in the state of Wisconsin as it is in the country as a whole. Yeah, totally. So last week, the president announced that he has put together a council of advisors that includes governors, scientists, and health experts to create a plan for reopening the United States for business. This comes amidst a larger conversation of states' responsibilities versus federal responsibilities during uh, this COVID-19 situation. Can you talk to us a little bit about the decision-making going forward, especially considering like our federalist structure, like you know, is the federal government doing enough? Are states doing enough? What is the balance and the dynamic there? Well, I can, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's fascinating. And and um, in the past couple of weeks, because of a, a research project I'm involved in with a lab at MIT at the Media Lab, I've been listening at some length to talk radio from across the country. Um, that this lab has been ingesting. And um, it's been striking to me the just the, um, the differential response across states. And there, you know, there are many states where the, I mean, the, the restrictions vary quite a bit by states. And so, for example, just last weekend in Ohio, it actually was legal for religious organizations to have gatherings around the Easter holiday, as I understand it. Um, and there was one um, charismatic Pentecostal church that was holding a service of, you know, um, 
allegedly 75 people were attending and um, that's that's very different than anything I've heard about uh, in Wisconsin, for example. And there is a very strong, um, you know, history and and kind of ethic of states' rights in many of our states that tend to be Republican leaning. And so there, you know, it's very much a partisan divide about how states are responding to this. So states that are very red, you see fewer restrictions. Um, and states that are much more blue, you see quite a few more restrictions. And so on the Glenn Beck show, for example, uh, last week there was a conversation about kind of mocking people, shaming other people for not abiding by social distancing. And they were sort of making fun of the L.A. mayor saying, you know, um, snitches get rewards, which is a direct quote from one of his uh, press conferences. So basically, the L.A. mayor was saying, you know, we want to know if you see people uh, violating some of these restrictions. And Glenn Beck, who is very much more from a libertarian angle, was, you know, making fun of this and how ridiculous. And that is exactly the opposite of what we want. And so you can see, you know, that the way people are responding to this varies a lot by partisan leaning. And that's true. That's very much true at the state level where, um, you know, states like Florida were much, much, much slower to impose restrictions um, than more blue states. Yeah, I can't help but think that the like responses, the many varied responses that states are having to this it's so fascinating. Like, I mean, yeah. comparing, even comparing like very specific instances with state Supreme Courts, like how here in Wisconsin, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court did not side with Governor Evers. But over the weekend, the Kansas State Supreme Court uh, approved unilaterally that the Governor Laura Kelly's order suspending all gatherings of more than 10 people was, was in order. It, like the, the contrast between states is so incredible right now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's an amazing country, is it? I mean, it's just yeah. so varied. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can just move into a question about your methodology for the politics of resentment, because I find that sure. really fascinating and relevant to maybe a lot of students' experiences here on campus and just having conversations with people of different political backgrounds. So part of your methodology was as you mentioned before, going around the state, going and inviting yourselves into conversations with people just to kind of listen and hear what they thought and honor their own truths and their own realities. So how would you maybe advise students on how to talk to their parents who might have vastly different views than their own, given what you learned from your own research and methodology yeah. with the politics of resentment? Well, first of all, I just start off by acknowledging it's hard. I mean, it's real, I, and I think it's especially hard when you're talking about people you love and are really dear to you. Like it's one thing for me to invite myself into a group of relative strangers, strangers to me, and listen to their thoughts. And um, there's just so much less emotional baggage going on there, right? Although I should say, I mean, many of these people became dear to me, so, but it's not, not the same level. But what I would say is, um, sort of keep me in mind as you're doing this in the sense of like, imagine that you're me and allow yourself the luxury of just listening. Like don't try 
at times to, to be with them and not feel as though you have to respond at some point or that you have to represent your own point of view, but that instead you have the luxury of your job being to better understand where they're coming from. And it, it takes so much pressure off of you. Like, cause I think part of what people feel is though, is, is not only am I going to put myself in this situation when I have to encounter views that don't make me feel very good, but I also have to like defend myself I have to represent myself. And that is super hard, right? Because you're already like all tightened up because you're upset and they're upsetting you and they're people you love and it's confusing. But if you can just put yourself in the space as a listener, you can actually enable yourself to better understand where they're coming from. And then down the line, maybe try that three times and three times in at some point in the conversation say, so I hear what you're saying. You know, I, I, I guess I understand. I get it. Here's how I'm thinking about it these days, you know, and just try that. Like, not like you're wrong and here's why, but I've been listening. You're sharing with me. I appreciate it. Here's how I think about it. It might not go well, <laughs> but it might like, because when you, I think when you pause and actually listen to people, it conveys a kind of respect that no other response can. And when they see you respecting their point of view, even though they know you disagree, I think they will be more likely to listen to you in turn. But also um, just acknowledging, you know, again, that it's hard and that it's okay to say, you know what, I'm, I've tried, I'm just, <laughs> I'm done for today, but <laughs> maybe another time, um, and to enable yourself to end the conversation, because it's, it's hard, and I think, it, especially now, like, we're all, we're all, like, just trying to keep it together, <laughs> you know what I mean, and, and I imagine, um, maybe you and, a lot of your pals in similar situations are at home with people they love and with whom they've come to disagree and everybody's kind of on edge. Just be gentle with yourself and not, not expect yourself to change anybody's mind because really in the end, the point is not to change other people's minds is to just to see each other as humans. Right. And to have some compassion from where we each are coming from. Yeah, that's really great and beautiful advice. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, you're um, welcome. I hope it works. If it doesn't, let me know. <laughs> yeah, and I hope we can do more of that just as a country moving into what's certain to be an incredibly divisive political cycle that, as I said, touches a lot of families and friendships as well. I hope the same. Um, so moving on, maybe to end with a little bit, a little bit on a lighter note with some fun oh, stuff. Uh, sure. The question. I promised from the beginning. Oh. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned, John Stewart did come to town and uh, hung out with you for a little bit for research on a movie he's coming out with, uh, Steve Carell and Rose Burns, set in Wisconsin. Can you just give us a little background on how that field trip with John Stewart came about and what that was like? Well, it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I got an email. Uh, let's see, it would have been like October of 2018-ish um, from a person 
who just briefly said, you know, I work with John Stewart's production company and we're working on a movie. Um, wondering if we could set up a call to talk with you. And I, and I thought that sounds really interesting. Like John Stewart's production company has got to be legit, you know? And so I said, sure. And I set up a call to talk with this woman and we get on the phone and she's super nice and talking for a little bit. And then she says, okay, just hold on a second. I'll patch John through. <laughs> and I thought, okay, great. So yeah, I had a phone call with John Stewart, which wow. I'm not, um, I'm not exaggerating. He was just extremely funny from the very first second. <laughs> like, I, I wish I wish I could remember everything he said, but he is just definitely one of these people who is just naturally funny, super funny. And so we chatted for a while. He wanted he had come across my book and had read it and w asked me a bunch of questions about my book, and then he explained that they were making this movie, and so he was trying to learn as much as he could about Wisconsin. And then he said something along the lines of, you know, so if I come out to Wisconsin, um, will you ha will you make time to talk with me? And I said <laughs> something like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. So and I said, but, you know, if you come out here, you really we should go on a road trip because you should see more of the state like they he knew at the time that the, the movie would be set in something akin to a Wisconsin small town. And I said, Madison is awesome. You will love it here. You'll have a great time, but we really should get out of Madison and see more of the state. And he said, yeah, definitely. So, you know, he said, send me some dates when you could take some time. And, and so in December of 2018, we went on this, was it, it was two days, I guess they picked me up in the morning and we drove, um, it was a big kind of big circle around the state and he, they had sort of described the type of communities they were interested in seeing. And so I sort of plotted out a, a map and then over breakfast, I learned that the places I thought that they should see weren't, weren't quite what would be helpful. So we redirected and, and ended up just making this big loop. We stayed overnight in, the, in a small town in Wisconsin. And um, it was, it was just it was at the time of my life. I mean, it really was an amazing experience because he is so funny. And Katie Gray, his associate, is just a really cool person, too. And um, going on a road trip with Jon Stewart is a mix of just laughing your head off and really intense um, conversations about mm -hmm. democracy and our political system and the nature of our communications in this country and so I learned a ton and I just had a great time and it's it's a little bit surreal in my memory that it took mm -hmm. place but he, I just um one uh, last thing I'll say is it, it was a great experience in that there have been a few times in my life when I've met someone who I thought was kind of a hero and they ended up being not quite the the stellar human being that I had thought and that was definitely not my experience with John Stewart. He mm. just was a pretty um, amazing human being in the way he interacted with people whom we came across by chance. And they'd say like, Oh my God, you're John Stewart. What are you doing in Wisconsin? You know, like we were at um, a roadside stop at one point and this woman came out of the bathroom and she's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, and his response, it could have been just like, 
you know, I don't know, hunkering down in, into his shell like a turtle. And instead, he was just so generous with people and kind and funny and warm. And um, I, I'm just so glad I got to meet him. Yeah, that makes me think, too, that sometimes amidst all this madness of living in Wisconsin and the politics that happens here, it's a really special privilege for political scientists and students oh, of political yeah. science to experience this firsthand and um, witness it as participants. That is a great way to put it. It is really a privilege. Like, I feel, I feel so privileged to have done the research that I did and to have the opportunity for people to, to turn to me to try to get some answers. You know, like I said when we were starting off the recording today, like, I wish I had more answers than I do. But it is a real privilege to be able to, to study something that you care so much about and for, to, for people to turn to you and try to make sense of it all. We just have one last question. Um, sure. Thank you for those thoughtful responses. So our last one is, as a former political science student, do you have any advice for students, especially seniors who are graduating, looking about uh, at getting a job or going to grad school, kind of what the future is in this time of political divisiveness and also COVID-19? Sure. Well, I've been thinking about you all so much and that I still remember what that was like to, I mean, I'm going to choke up just talking about it, but graduation, for example, like, I hope, I hope at some point you have the opportunity to experience something like a graduation because um, just putting on that robe, sorry, <laughs> I just feel really bad. Um, there's really nothing like it. And it's, I mean, it's an awesome feeling to know that you've had this experience and met all these people that you will love for the rest of your life. Um, yeah, I'm so sorry. But, okay, on a happier note, you that feeling of hanging out on the terrace or um, being in Memorial Union Honestly, it kind of always feels like that when you come back. Like, I have, a, I have a weird situation, right, where I, I work there and I can walk down to the terrace anytime I want. But it will always be a special place for you guys. Like, you, you had to leave in such a rush. It's so unfortunate. Um, but you will always be welcome back. And you, it'll just being back on campus will give you that same feeling. It's kind of hard to describe. Um, but also just as political scientists, I know you get this all the time. Like, what are you going to do with a political science degree? Right? Well, you got a political science degree at a great moment in history because so much of what you've learned probably is like the essence of the human problem, which is like, how do we figure out how to live together? when there's the human life is so varying and so diverse and there's so many competing social identities and, and ideas about how we ought to do this thing of democracy or having a society together. 
And that's not just a political question. It's like, it's a question that every sector of life is confronting right now. Like, how, how do you be a good business person knowing that that's like the landscape on which you're trying to create products and sell products? Or how do you be a good communicator in whatever industry or, or, or job or line of work you go into, right? That the political science is not just about politics. It's just fundamentally about how do we be together as humans? <laughs> how do we figure it out? And going forward, I would just remember that you've learned a lot about how to communicate and how to make sense of complex human behavior, both in terms of institutions and just like individual psychology. And you're actually really well tooled up to confront the nutty world you're, <laughs> you all are taking charge of. And, um, it's it's a it's a more complicated world than I've ever experienced in my life, but we have more tools at our disposal than ever to deal with the problems that we're gonna face. So, yeah, you have a lot on your plates, but there's also just an enormous amount of opportunity and a and a real hunger for the ingenuity that young people like you all can provide. So, I would say keep dreaming big and don't let the don't let the pandemic get you down. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom COVID-19. Stay safe and take care of each other.